Hi, my name is Jean. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Um, I've been sober for five years, five plus years. I had my first drink as a teenager. Um, I decided that I was going to just, you know, I was having fun with a friend and we decided to drink. And um, what I found out about it is that I liked it because it took me outside myself and I was able to deal with things better. Um, I was always a shy, awkward teenager. Um, I always felt isolated and I had many problems that were going on that alcohol made me forget. So I liked that feeling. Although I didn't start drinking really heavily until I was in my 20s. And then I started drinking um, just because it helped me get through. However, I was still able to keep a job. Um, still able to look, you know, normal to everybody else. Um, I, uh, in my 20s, I also found pills, which uh, are part of my story. I know it's alcohol, it's anonymous, but it's part of it. Um, I started using those and um, I used them for, because I hurt my back, but then I just started using them because they made me feel normal and I use those all the time every day. Um, but I still was able, I felt like to keep it together. I went to my job. I was able to work full time. I was able to keep relationships with my family and friends at that time. Um, but um, then in about my 30s, things started to turn worse. I uh, was in a relationship at that time and um, using heavily. And I felt that um, I had so much built inside me, anger, um, so many emotions because of things that have happened in my life um, that I couldn't talk about it with my partner at the time. So... I couldn't talk with it. I didn't believe that therapy would work. So I decided drinking and using was the only thing that would help me. Um, I spiraled out of control in my, later in my 30s. It just got really bad. I started to abuse big time alcohol, um, taking pills with alcohol. I didn't care what happened. I ended up passed out on I was at bars, I would go out of the bar and I'd end up passed out and not know what happened. Um, ended up with people that I didn't even know how I even got there. Um, until one time when somebody actually, um, I met somebody at a bar and they actually drugged me. And then I found out later, you know, things happened and I blame myself for it because I wasn't I wasn't all together. I was using and I felt like it was my fault. And then I ended up on, you know, just laying in a, in a gutter somewhere. And I was like, woke up from that. And what do I think? I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to go home and I'm going to try to get it together. And I tried, but couldn't. Um, still was using, got so bad that I was using drugs that were and this is so hard for me to say, but using drugs that were for 
um, one of my friend's animals had cancer and I was using those, you know, they were pain pills. I was using drugs from anybody I could find them from going in medicine chests. I was drinking, not caring. Um, my job was suffering. Um, my relationships were suffering. My family, um, they noticed that something was really wrong. And and my friends, they just, nobody knew who I was anymore. And I didn't recognize myself. I knew I needed help, but I still didn't know how to get it. And I was turning to anywhere to get drugs. I mean, anywhere that, you know, could feed what I needed. Um, anywhere that could feed, you know, drinking all at all hours, not caring. I'm not showing up to work sometimes. Um it just got really bad to where now it wasn't just, I wasn't holding it together and able to hold my job together. I was losing everything. Um, so it, it gets to that point where you feel like there's nowhere else to turn. And I, um, I actually had a bunch of my friends get together and, um, and uh, family, and they all sat me down, and I had an intervention. And when I walked in and I saw them all, I broke down, and I was like, you know, I needed help. I knew I needed help, but I didn't want to go away for it. I thought, oh, you know, I'll be okay. I can go to a day, whatever, and I'll be fine. And I uh, went in and got help at um, MPI, which... I went into Oakland for 30 days and it was the best 30 days of my life. I went in, they saved my life. I went in and had this wonderful counselor who I talked to and was able to see why I was doing what I was doing, why I was drinking, why I was trying to numb all the pain, why I was um, working so hard to keep everything down. I was able to talk to other alcoholics and other addicts. And I didn't feel alone. That isolation I felt as a kid, I no longer felt that. I had these group of people that understood exactly what was going on with me. And um, it helped me to see that, you know, I can do this. I can get myself through this. And um, probably, you know, staying in there was the best thing for me. And I was scared to leave. But I was able to do it through you guys, through everybody in these meetings. I was I went to 90 days, uh, 90 days worth of meetings, you know, every day. I uh, got a sponsor. I worked the steps two times um, and continue to work the steps. And I've had sponsees. I, I feel like the steps have helped me to recover and to become who I am today. Um, without this, without you guys, without the meetings, without everything that I've learned here, I know, I mean, I, I'm not just saying, oh, well, maybe, no, I would be dead on the street somewhere because that's how bad it was. And um, I had a friend who was also an alcoholic and he 
was around, you know, in his fifties and struggling with it. And he, he decided, well, I'm going to be sober after I got sober and he tried for a year, but he was in liver failure and he tried and went to a meeting every day and he stayed sober and he did so good. And I was so proud of him at the end, but seeing him in that emergency room, if you ever feel, okay, I see that. Thank you. If you ever feel like you're going to drink, well, don't because seeing that um it was horrifying and it was sad and today getting to where it is now you're right 10 minutes goes by fast um i'm in a wonderful relationship with a wonderful man i just got married and i feel so much better i'm in school i was in school i'm actually done with school now just have to get my certifications to be in the medical field, which I'm so excited about. It's something I've always wanted to do. 50 years old, but doing it. And before that stuff would have scared me, I wouldn't have been able to do it. But now through this program and through the help of everybody, I'm able to do that. I'm able to um, be at my job all the way. I'm able to be with my friends and family all the way. I just found out my um, somebody that is like an aunt to me has cancer and I'm able to be there for her all the way. I'm able to be there for my family if they need me. I'm, I feel like I'm at a place that has, you know, is where I've always wanted to be. Do I have struggles? Yes. All the time. Do I feel like, Oh God, you know, I'm so stressed. I could use a drink. Yeah. That's always going to come up. Uh, for us alcoholics, that's what comes up and it's going to come up every day, but it's one day at a time. So that's my story and um, I'm sticking to it. All right. Thank you, Laura, so much. Hi, everybody. My name is Madison. I'm an alcoholic. Um, I'm in Anchorage, Alaska. My home group is Queer Ideas of Fun on Monday nights at 630. And uh, thanks, Laura, for asking me to speak I totally forgot I was speaking tonight. I'm glad you texted me because I was like, I totally spaced it. But uh, Jean, thank you so much for your share. I related so much to to what you said. Like, I, there's a lot of similarities in our story. And I, that's the thing I love about Alcoholics Anonymous is just like the transparency here. Like, I remember when I first came in, people were so honest. And, and I felt like most of my life, like people were wearing masks. Like, but when I came into AA, like people were real, you know, people shared their struggles. They were honest about like fear and ego and resentment and their failures and their successes. And for me, that was such an attractive thing. And after all these years, it's still a very attractive thing to me is people's transparency. Like I feel at home in Alcoholics Anonymous and I don't love everything about AA. I don't love all the people in AA, but like it has given me such a, a good life. You know, my life is I, I got sober when I was 21 and I just, I just turned 50 as well. I, I turned 50 in May and I'm like, holy shit, I can't believe I lived to 50, you know, like I thought I was going to die at 25 and um, just because the way I was drinking and doing drugs. But um, anyway, this has been my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous has been the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I was sharing in a meeting last night about we were reading about that part in working with others where it's, it's talking about how newcomers clamor for this or that, like job, wife, job or no job, wife or no wife, you know, like that paragraph there that talks about um, 
like putting spirituality first. Like, and I remember when I had that surrender, like, you know, where I was like, if I don't have my sobriety, I don't have anything. Like there's no job, there's no relationship, there's no health, you know, and just surrendering to the fact that I'm a real alcoholic. And, and the solution to this for me is it's spiritual in nature, not religious. Um, you know, when I first got sober, um, I, I had a lot of like perceptions about God. When I first came to AA, I was raised in the South in a very religious home. And I knew I was going to burn in hell. Like I knew God was going to cook me. And when I came into AA, I got sober in Montana and there was this old cowboy and he said, Alcoholics Anonymous will work for you if you believe in Jesus Christ. Alcoholics Anonymous will work for you if you don't believe in Jesus Christ. And even if you believe that you are Jesus Christ, Alcoholics Anonymous will work for you. And like, I don't know, it was just really like inviting to me, you know. Nobody told me, they just said, hey, do these steps, like, you know, pray on your knees, you know, meditate, um, do an inventory, you know, like be honest with somebody about your inventory and then make amends for harm's done, you know, and then as a result of doing those steps, like I've come to know a power greater than myself. I don't understand it, but I can feel it and I see it working in my life. And it's relieved me of the obsession to drink and do drugs. Like I'm a fiend. Like I'll huff gasoline. I'll, you know, I'll do anything. I'll dig through the carpet. If I think there's cocaine in the carpet or weed in the carpet, I'll dig through the carpet and smoke things that are white or green. Like, I don't care, you know? And I'll drink a, you know, a beer that has a cigarette butt in it. I have no problem doing that. Like, I'm just anything to get me out of my, between my ears, you know? And, um, you know, the fact that I have freedom from that today is, is such a blessing. Like I, like I said, I thought I was going to die at age 25. And, um, you know, I, I'm a nurse. I've been a nurse uh, 17, almost 18 years. I'm an ER nurse and I work around drugs and it never occurs to me to steal them, which is amazing because, you know, 28, 29 years ago, I would have done that, you know, but I don't want to feel altered. I like the way I feel, you know, in my body and in my brain, you know, I have crazy days, but big, big picture is, is I like being me, you know, um, and that's a that's a huge blessing. And I, I remember coming to AA thinking my life was going to suck. Like I thought, like I was 21 when I got sober. I only drank and used from the time I was 14 till 21. And I thought my life was going to be super lame when I got sober. I was like, well, well, if I'm not wasted, how can I have sex? If I'm not wasted, how can I drive a car? If I'm not wasted, how can I go to work? You know, like everything I did, I was wasted, either high or drunk when I did it. And like the idea of like, I just didn't think I could have fun. And like, my life is just blown up. Like there's so much, there's so much richness in my life. And there's so many things in my life that are blessings that I didn't even know that I wanted. Right. And like one of those blessings is working with others, like this ability to, like, I heard a speaker from Washington say one time that, that we can help when nobody else can. And that's like a superpower, right? Like, judges and therapists and parents try to help alcoholics but the best person to help a drunk is another drunk and that's that's awesome to be able to have that ability like I remember being a newcomer or not even a newcomer I was sober a couple of years and 
I was like, God, what do you want from me? Like, well, like, it's pretty clear that God wants me to serve and be helpful to alcoholics who are still suffering. Cause like, that's, I'm uniquely qualified for that. And, um, anyway, um, I'm originally from the South. I was born and raised in Georgia and Alabama. Um, I, I, I was raised by two very Christian, very uh, kind people. I've got an older brother and an older sister. And, uh, you know, my earliest memories were I just felt like a freak. Like I, I remember I was four years old and um, I'm trans, I'm transgender. And I was praying that God would turn me into a woman. And I remember like thinking, you're a freak, you're an abomination. Like this was like 19, it would have been like 1977 or 78. And I was like, I'm a freak and I'm going to go to hell for this. And then like, I stopped praying for that. And I was like, okay, God, make me into a manly man, you know, and like just trying to like pray it away and be different. And, um, you know, as a, a really outdoorsy kid, I was very, uh, I loved catching snakes and uh, crawdads and I loved fishing and being in the woods and stuff. And but at the same time, I wanted to be a, a female. And I was like, you know, it never went away. It just kept persisting. And, and like, when I first took a drink, um, it took all that away. It took all that internalized um, hatred and self-loathing away. And um, I was able to express myself, you know, I was able to express my sexuality and my gender identity. And I didn't feel like such a freak. Um, my alcoholism took off very quickly. It um, progressed very rapidly. You know, it talks about in the book, the alcoholic is more or less insanely drunk. And that's how I was. Like there was, ne there was no moderation. There was no slow period of working up to it. It was just pretty much hammered from the very get-go. I started drinking. Uh, I started drinking at school. I remember drinking at the school bus stop. And this, this girl, she was a bookworm. And she walked up to the, the bus stop. And I'm swigging a bottle of Bacardi rum at the bus stop. And she was like, are you crazy? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, and I had that so much when I was drinking, people would always look at me with these eyes of like, what the hell's wrong with you? And honestly, I couldn't answer that question. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And um, I ended up getting suspended from school for drinking. I got one of the teachers smelled booze on me. I was suspended at 15. Uh, and then I got back into school and then I got into drugs. I, um, uh, we had moved to Atlanta at this point, and uh, uh, this was, you know, this was the late 80s, and uh, crack cocaine was huge in Atlanta at that time, and uh, I got heavy into crack co cocaine, you know, I was, I started by just drinking and smoking pot, and in a couple of years, I was smoking rock every chance I got, and, you know, I was, I was thinking about, like, um, what Gene was saying about the drug use, but, you know, Bill Wilson talks about drug use on page seven in his story. Like, like it's a big part of my story too. You know, like uh, I know this is Alcoholics Anonymous and we have singleness of purpose, but it is a part of my story. And uh, anyway, um, it, it just, it, it progressed very rapidly. Um, I had, you know, I had several experiences where I almost died um, while smoking crack. And then another experience where I was drunk, and I ate poisonous mushrooms at my friend. We were camping in the mountains and my friends were like, those that's not psilocybin, Madison. Don't eat that. Don't eat that. And of course I ate it and it wasn't psilocybin. And the next thing you know, I'm in the intensive care unit and I'm on a ventilator and they're like going to do dialysis because my kidneys are shutting down. And like, 
I was in the ICU for quite a while and they got me through that. And I remember being discharged. The doctor was sitting on my bed with me and he was like, that was the most foolish thing I've seen anybody do. Like you've got to lay off the alcohol. And I remember looking at, he was handsome. And I remember looking at him going, he's smart. He's handsome. I believe what he says and I'm going to stay sober. Right. Like I got discharged on a Tuesday and by Friday night I was drinking again, you know, like, and I told myself, I remember the the justification was like, well, I'm not in the mountains and there's no mushrooms around, you know, I'm fine. I just like the insanity of it. Um, like I just, it talks about in the book that we have, we can't bring into our consciousness with sufficient force, you know, the suffering of a couple of days ago. And that's my, you know, I'm a smart girl when it comes to some things. Like I, I graduated college with high honors. Uh, I'm good with chemistry. I'm good with anatomy and physiology. I'm, you know, I've got a good memory and like, but when it comes to alcohol, I'm a dumbass. When I, when it comes to drugs, I'm a dumbass. Like I just, I'm, I don't have any other way to say it. Like I just have no common sense or anything intelligence when it comes to that stuff. And uh, I could not stay away from it, even though it was like, you know, I kept touching a hot stove. Is it still hot? Ouch. Yes, it's still hot. Is it still hot? You know, and I kept touching it. My alcoholism progressed really rapidly from there. I I ended up uh I ended up got I got arrested at school. I was selling acid in the bathroom. I got arrested and that was my first exposure to Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. I went in downtown Atlanta to AA and NA and I related to what they were saying, but gosh, I was like 16 or 17 years old and it's like I just wanted to get the heat off. I didn't want to get sober. I just wanted to get the heat off to meetings so I'd look good in front of the judge and uh, my parents paid a lot of money for a good lawyer and got me out, out of that trouble and I laid low for a long time I just I settled back into I laid off the crack I laid off the acid but I turned into the steady relationship with with booze and um, I had a, a boyfriend at the time he's a little bit older and he lived in Athens Georgia and I would go and stay with him and you know, he was able to buy booze or get booze. And like, we would just black out. Like, I remember, like, there was this period where I started to black out and uh, all the time. And um, I, I came, I can't tell you how often I drove drunk. You know, I drove drunk so many different times, uh, come come to out of a blackout driving a car, um, multiple times going, where the hell am I? You know, what happens? Like one time I, I came to driving a car and I had put my underwear over the top of my jeans. I was wearing my jeans with no underwear on. And then I'd put my underwear on over my jeans. You know, and I came to driving my car, like dressed all jacked. My, you know, I, was, I wasn't dressed properly. And it was just like, that happened so many times, you know, like trying to drive with one eye, you know, opening the door so I could see the, the white line, you know, rolling all the windows down. Because if it's cold, I'll drive better, you know, just all that crazy stuff. And it, my life got very pathetic. Um, I got, I was working at Taco Bell. I was stealing money out of the till at Taco Bell. And I worked there for quite a while and people would come through the drive through and I would, um, you know, they would order like six tacos, but I would only ring up like three of them. And, but then I would still give them six tacos and then pocket the money for the other tacos. And I did that for years. 
And uh, my life just got really small and pathetic. And I was like, I've got to do something about this. And I, I took a geographic, you know, I, I always wanted to be out West. I always loved the mountains. And, you know, I was in the Boy Scouts when I was little. I loved backpacking and hiking and stuff. And me and a couple of friends ended up riding our bikes from Virginia to Montana. And, um, you know, I, I figured like, if I can just get out of Georgia, things will be better. And it was a, you know, I thought if I can just get to the clear mountain air of the Rocky Mountains, I'll be better. And you know how that story goes. I followed me, right? Like my alcoholism followed me. I end up in Montana and I'm, you know, it's no different. You know, the only difference is I couldn't get the hard drugs. I didn't know anybody that could get the hard drugs. And uh, I got a job just outside Yellowstone Park working. And, um, you know, I turned into this horrible relationship with where again I'm blacking out I tell myself I'm going to do all these great things but I end up at the bar all the time doing nothing just talking about the cool things I'm going to do and then um, this the summer of 1994 came and we decided well let's you know I'm you know the problem must be Montana I got to get out of Montana so I came up here to Alaska you know I just did geographic after geographic trying to you know make myself better and um I ended up in Alaska. I rode my bicycle from Montana to Alaska. It took eight weeks. And, and in that time, I hit my bottom. I got very pathetic. Uh, I was eating ramen noodles and mashed potatoes, like instant mashed potatoes. And, and I was super skinny. I was collecting aluminum cans along the roadside. They'll, you can sell them in Canada and they'll give you 10 cents a can. And I was riding up the Alaska highway. I had really long hair at that time. And like, I looked all freaky and ratty and I was traveling with this, this other really freaking person. And like, my life was just so empty. And, you know, I was drinking every chance I got. I couldn't, I barely had any money. We were dumpster diving uh, along the Alaska highway. I remember one time getting a pizza out of a dumpster and I felt like I, I was like the queen of the world. Like, I just scored a pizza out of a, out of a dumpster. Like my, my life, I was like, I remember when I was a little kid, I was like, I'm going to be like a wildlife biologist. I'm going to travel the world. Right. Like, and here I am, like I'm homeless on my bicycle dumpster diving. Like, how did this happen? I'm 21 years old. How did my life get so pathetic? I was starting to have like numbness in my hands and like I was hallucinating all the time, especially when I wasn't drinking, I would shake. Um, you know, it was bad. I smelled horrible. Like the, you know, that smell when you've been drinking and you can't wash it off, you know, especially if you've been sleeping outside over and over again, it was nasty. Uh, I ended up, um, the long and the short of it is I ended up in Skagway, Alaska. Um, it's a little town in Southeast Alaska. And I got a job working at a, a small diner that did breakfast and I would get up and be there at 6 a.m., and they would pay me under the table and I would get off work and they would pay me and I would be like, I'm not going to drink tonight. And, you know, I would go, I was living in my tent outside the city and um, I would by five o'clock, I'm like, screw it. I cannot not drink. And I would drive, I would ride my bike into the, into the town and drink and spend all my money and go, damn it, damn it. Why did I do this? All right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get sober tomorrow. But since I've already started drinking, I'm going to get wasted tonight and make my last drunk a good one. And I did that for a month, just every day, just being like, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. And um, 
one of those, the last nights I was there, I was hanging out with some folks who were drinking. There was a bonfire and um, the one of the guys was talking about beating up his brother. And um, this voice inside my head said, look at the people that you're hanging out with. And I, st- I kind of like walked away from the, the bonfire and I had a white light experience where my dead grandmother spoke to me. And she pretty much said that I owed her sobriety. There's a backstory up behind that, but I really don't have time to tell that right now. But anyway, so I had this white light experience that kind of initially got me sober. You know, the problem with a white light experience, if I don't follow it up with action, I'm screwed, right? Like I can have an amazing spiritual experience today and then be a total crackhead tomorrow. Like I, it's like it talks about in the book, I got a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. And um, like, I didn't do anything like it talks about in the book, like to enlarge my spiritual life. Like I, I ended up back in, I went back to go live with my parents for a brief period of time. And um, I, I'd, I'd used all my money. I'd spent all my money in Alaska and my parents like took me in one more time at their house. And, and I ended up getting a job and I had a boyfriend at the time. I started working out. I felt like I was fit. Uh, I wasn't drinking. I was kind of half-assed going to AA. I would drop into AA every now and then. And then um, that was August of 1994. And I stayed sober until November 27th of 94. And what happened was, is I just like, you know, I relate to so much in the book, you know, like that my period of sobriety had qualified me to drink like other people. And so I was like three months sober. I'm like, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. You know, I'm fit now. You know, I got a boyfriend, you know, like everything's good. And I planned a drunk. And I went to a bar in downtown Atlanta and I planned to drink four beers, right? Like um, I told myself, I'm going to stop at four. I'm going to leave the bar at four. Like, you know how that story went, right? Like I went well over four. Like I, I probably drank 24 and then I smoked crack with a man in the bathroom and then had sex with him in a bathroom stall and then drove home drunk in a blackout, right? Like that was my last drunk. That was November 27th, 1994. You know, it was good for me to like, see how, like, it was good for me to get that beat up my last drunk. Like, I hope I don't ever forget that. I really hope I don't forget where I came from. And that's the nice thing about consistent participation in Alcoholics Anonymous is that I don't forget where I came from, right? Like here I am rehashing this right now with you. And then the other thing is when I'm sponsoring people, Like I read the book with them. That's how I was sponsored. And so like I've got, I'm sponsoring quite a few folks right now. So that keeps me in the literature and it keeps me fresh, right? Like I told you, like I'm a dumbass when it comes to alcohol and drugs, but if I'm staying in the solution with you, I don't forget, like I don't forget where I came from. Anyway, um, I ended up leaving Atlanta and going back to Montana to that little town I'd lived in. And um, I decided that I had to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I, you know, I'd had that exposure to it when I got arrested uh, back when I was 17. And I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous and it was a bunch of old cowboys. It was like cowboys in their 60s. And then there was like two women there. I hadn't transitioned at that time. I was just identifying as a queer person and like they were super welcoming to me, you know, and that was very impressive to me about AA is that, 
you know, it was obviously that I was queer, but they still were like, you know, this was right around the time that Matthew Shepard was murdered in Wyoming. And, um, you know, I was 21 years old. I had long hair. I wore makeup. I had big earrings, kind of like I do, not quite this big, but I had big hoop earrings and they just made me to feel a part of, you know, and that was so impressive to me that they didn't care, you know, about my gender identity. They didn't care about my sexuality. They just wanted to help me get sober. And and that was super refreshing. And I stayed in that group. I was in that group for four and a half years, almost five years. And I, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on the steps in that group. It was mostly just like, come to meetings, pray, help others, you know, and those guys were flourishing off of that. But what happened for me is like, I started to think that sobriety owed me more. Like, I was like, okay, God, you know, alcohol and drugs took so much away from me. I want, I want to get mine now. Like, I want to get better. I want my life to get just blow up, you know, and I had this really self-centered view of what I should be getting from Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't have a sponsor. I hadn't worked the steps. I hadn't made any amends. You know, here I was four and a half years sober. I got a job that was my higher power. I got a job up here in Alaska working for the park service. I was a backcountry ranger. I got paid to backpack and, you know, my ego was all wrapped up in this job and it, you know, it became my self-worth. It became my identity. And, um, I, I was going back and forth from Montana to Alaska to work in this job. And, and I almost drank at four and a half, five years sober. I almost drank and I was a mess. Like I was resentful. I was angry. I think it was, I was sicker in AA without working steps than I was when I was drinking and using. Cause when I was drinking and using, I was numb. Like I was, I didn't have resentments. I didn't care what you thought of me. I didn't care about you. But when I got sober, I started having all kinds of opinions and judgments about other people. Like, just arrogance and all this stuff. And um, I almost drank over that. And, and uh, I knew that if I didn't work the steps, like something was going to, you know, that I was going to leave Alcoholics Anonymous and not come back and probably die from my alcoholism. And I, I was living, went back to Montana and there was this guy who would come down from meetings in Bozeman uh, to this little town I was living in. And he was on fire. He had, he had a glow to him. He was laughing all the time and he'd worked the steps and he kept saying, Matt Madison, if you want, I'll take you through the steps. I'll take you through the steps. And, um, and finally I ended up asking him to sponsor me. It was like every fiber in my, my body was like, don't ask him to sponsor you. But I did. And uh, it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Like he took me through the book and that book was so stupid to me before somebody else read it with me. I would be like, what the hell does this shit mean? Like, I didn't get it. Like, it didn't make any sense to me. But when I had another alcoholic read, read it with me and it, I identified with it, it came alive. You know, it made sense to me. And I started, I saw that I was a real alcoholic. And, and I think the most important thing for me was that I think it's Fred, the, the dude that owns the car dealership, you know, the guy that used to own the car dealership and he loses it because of his drinking. And then he gets a job there. So he's working back as a just a lonely, lowly salesman when he used to own the place. And he's got like his egos and, you know, in full swing and he argues with the boss. He's got a resentment. And then he goes out into the country and he stops at a roadside bar and decides to have sandwich and a glass of milk and then he orders another sandwich and a glass of milk and he puts whiskey in milk and then he repeats the 
you know, the whole cycle of drinking over and over again and blows his life up. And my sponsor pointed out that that man had the spiritual malady cooking like that soul sickness cooking when he went into that bar and that that soul sickness kicked off the mental obsession. And then the mental obsession kicks off the physical allergy. And it really helped me see what alcoholism is about, that it's a spiritual problem. And if I can address the spiritual portion, like I can't control the mental obsession. I can't control the physical allergy, but I can clean up my spiritual condition on a daily basis. And that's how I get to get long-term sobriety. Uh, like if I feel okay in my skin, I don't want to pick up. Like, you know, if I, if I have tools to deal with the, the stuff that comes my way, um, I don't want to pick up, but we worked those, those steps. Uh, the fourth step was so good for me. Like I was so judgmental of other people, but when I worked the fourth step, like it, it helped me to just stop pointing fingers and have more compassion and love for my fellow human. And like, I just really started to change. You know, I started to believe, you know, that there was a God that was personal to me. You know, that, that line in the book that says, the sunlight of the spirit is broad, roomy, and all-inclusive, never exclusive. You know, for me, that was like, uh, as a queer person, that was very inviting. You know, I felt like I can stay here. And um, uh, I had stolen a bunch of money, like I said, and I hadn't paid any of it back. I went back to that Taco Bell that I had worked at and I ended up paying all that money back that I stole. And I thought I was going to go to jail over that. And I didn't go to jail. And it was a, you know, the ninth step was really good for me because I, it's the first time I start, I was able to trust God. Like I was, um, it was where the rubber met the road for me. It's cause I had so much fear going into a bunch of those amends and it ended up being okay. Like those amends ended up being okay. And I felt closer to the people who I made amends with. My parents took the brunt of my alcoholism. My mom and dad got the most of, of my abuse. Uh, I was physically violent with them. I slammed my mother against the wall one time and I said, I'll kill you if you don't stay out of my life. She flushed. I can't remember if it was drugs or alcohol, but anyway, she flushed something down the toilet and I grabbed her and slammed her against the wall. And I stole their money and my dad had this uh, bucket. He would put in money all year long to buy my mom a Christmas present. And I knew where that bucket was and I would steal money out of that bucket for drugs and alcohol. You know, I almost caught their house on fire. I sold drugs out of their house. Uh, I wrecked their cars, multiple cars, 10 minutes. Or is it, okay. Wow. That went fast. Um, Anyway, like I, uh, I just treated them like crap and, and uh, I made formal amends to my parents in 2000 and I, I'm grateful for good sponsorship to tell me how to make an amend, right? Like, I just want to say, I'm sorry and get the guilt over with, but my sponsor was really adamant that this is about setting the other person free. And it's about a demonstration moving forward. It's just, you know, yeah, there's a formal amend that takes place in the very beginning, but you pay attention. And, and I was given like a, a format. My sponsor said, I want you to tell them this is what you did. You were wrong to do it. Uh, is there anything else you've done and what can you do to make it right? And like, when I said that to my dad, my sponsor said, I want you to pay attention when they tell you what you can do to make it right. And when I said that to my dad, my dad said, yeah, the way you've treated your mother has been devastating to me. I love that woman. And he treated her like crap, you know, and, and, I want you to show up in our family and be a part of our family. 
you know, for the rest of your days. And like, um, I made that formal amend back in 2000, but I live that formal amend or that demonstration. I still live it. My dad just died in April uh, and I'm still making that living amend, you know, like they wouldn't take all the money back that I stole. And so my sponsor was like, you, you pay for vacations, you buy them nice things for Christmas. The first, when I first became a nurse, I bought my mom a diamond necklace. And then um, when my dad died, the finances weren't quite what my mom thought they were going to be. And my mom was kind of panicking financially. She's struggling. And the nice thing is, is I have a good job now and I'm able to support my mom. I paid for my dad's funeral. Uh, I was able to give my mom a bunch of extra money after my dad died to kind of help her to be safe and comfortable. And that's what my dad would have wanted me to do. So like my dad's dead, but I'm still making living amends to him, you know? So the amends don't stop. Right. Like that's the thing. If, if I leave Alcoholics Anonymous and I start drinking, there's so many things I miss out on, you know, not let alone my health and like my life, but like these connections with other people are so beautiful. And like, that's where I see my higher power is connection with other people. Um, it was weird. I, I thought, oh, because I'm queer, nobody wants me to sponsor them. And then, of course, once the reason that nobody wanted me to sponsor them is I hadn't done any work in AA. Like I really wasn't doing anything. But once I started to make amends, it was weird. Like these people started asking me to sponsor them. And I started taking people through the steps and like, the, the book really came alive for me and I really started to feel connectedness with other people and God when that happened. Um, you know, my life has really gotten, you know, I've been blessed in so many ways. I got kicked out of high school when I was, you know, I think I was 16 or 17 and I got my GED and I went back to nursing school when I was 27. I got my bachelor's of science in nursing uh, graduated when I was 32 years old and I graduated with high honors. My dad was there when I graduated and he said, I'm so proud of you. You've made your amends to me now. And um, I've only seen him cry a couple of times. And that was one of the times. And the other time was when I got arrested for selling drugs before he died. He told me nobody makes your mom laugh the way you do. And like, it used to be like, nobody made my mom cry the way I did, you know? And, um, my mom is one of my best friends now. Like she's 86 years old. My dad was 89 and uh, my mom lives in Georgia, but I go back frequently and I call him all the time and I FaceTime them all the time, but my life has gotten really good. I, uh, I guess one more thing I should talk about how much time do I have left? Laura, is it five minutes? Six. Hang on. Six. Okay, cool. Um, I, so I, you know, I, I identified as a queer person, you know, and I knew I was trans. It was just like, it wasn't safe for me to transition. And I felt like I had so much fear around losing my family around transitioning. And I thought, you know, like, I thought I'm going to screw up my body. I'm going to be ugly and all this crap. And like, but a few, about five years ago, it got to the point where I was like, I can't keep living this way. And it was right before COVID. And I, I started to transition and it was like one of the hardest times of my sobriety. Um, I struggled with suicidal ideation a couple of times with long-term sobriety. Uh, and it's all really been around being trans. Like um, I knew that I was trans a long time ago. I just like, I just couldn't accept it. I mean, I knew it was my truth, but I just couldn't like fully accept it. And I felt like I could, could control it kind of like I thought I could control alcoholism. 
And uh, I do a lot of backpacking and hiking and stuff. Uh, here in Alaska, I like to collect antlers and skulls and feathers and bones and things. Like my, I would show you my house. It's a little freaky, some of my, my antler collection. But um, anyway, I, I do a spring trip every year. And I went out to um, southwest Alaska to look for antlers. And I had a friend who was going to go with me. And they bailed at last minute. And I was just really depressed. I felt like a freak. I don't fit in with society. You know, why do I want to like, I got a lot of attention for my male body and the way I looked, you know, when I was masculine and like, I'm like, I'm a freak, I'm an abomination. And I'm like, God, why don't you just kill me? Like, I can't be in a relationship with anybody. I'm just such a freak. And I was in this pity party. And I went out on this backpacking trip by myself. And I ended up having an encounter with a grizzly bear where this grizzly bear ran at me. Uh, I It charged me from about 300 feet away and it veered away at like 20 feet before it almost hit me. And I was like, as I was standing, I was standing my ground yelling at it. And I was like, I remember I'd felt suicidal before that trip, but as that bear was running at me, I was like, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And like, I don't know. It was almost like God was like, Oh, you really want this? This is what this looks like, you know? And it was like, it was a spiritual experience for me. And it kind of woke me up and kind of, I didn't fully accept myself, but it was, it was a spiritual experience. And then fast forward a couple years later, I'd already started a transition. I asked people to, to call me by, you know, to call me Madison and, and I had started taking hormones and I just felt like kind of somewhere in between. And it just was really uncomfortable for me. And I was, I was hiking again up behind my house here. I live right at the base of the mountains and by the Chugach mountains and, uh, I'm in East Anchorage and um, I just felt like such a freak. It was on a Tuesday and it was really rainy and there was nobody else out. And usually when it's rainy and cold, there's not that many people hiking. And I had, um, I'd been up on top of this mountain and I had my, I carry a gun for bears and uh, I was coming down this mountain and uh, I was thinking about shooting myself in the head and uh this other trans woman came up the trail like she was beaming like it was a total god shot like this other trans woman like um she had like a marine corps tattoo on her um on her arm and she was like buff but she was like she had her eyes all done she had like fake lashes on her she was just beaming with happiness and it was her nails were all done i remember being like oh my god like this was like a I've never seen that woman since. And Anchorage is, I mean, yeah, we're a big town, but I know a lot of people here, especially queer and trans people. And like, I've never seen that woman since. And it was a total God shot. It was like, God was showing me that I can be happy, you know? And since then, like, I used to really care a lot about what people thought of me, but since I've transitioned, like, I just, I'm more happy that I feel comfortable in my own skin. Like other people's opinions of me. Yeah, it sucks that people hate trans people. But like, I mean, the bottom line is I feel comfortable in my skin. And like, I've never felt this amazing in my body. And um, I've just really been enjoying the fruits of that. And I remember, you know, when I came into AA, I just thought life is going to suck. And, it, you know, I feel like I just have been, you know, Bill likes that. Bill Wilson liked that, you know, sensational 
literature or, you know, rocketed into the fourth dimension. Well, it's true. You know, for me, I really have been, you know, like I like traveling. I like backpacking. Uh, just last year, I spent a, a month in Africa. I went to uh, Kenya, uh, excuse me, Tanzania, Malawi, Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Botswana. And it was incredible, right? Like I saw Victoria Falls and did a bunch of safaris. And like, that's the second time I've been to Africa, you know, and I just thought my life was going to be so lame. And I, but I, I, like I said earlier, I think the greatest gift is like the people that I sponsor and my opportunity in Alcoholics Anonymous to be helpful to the alcoholic who still suffers. I was traveling. Uh, I was in Denver. I was in, I went to an AA conference in Co Colorado over this past weekend. And I had the AA hotline for Anchorage when I came uh, the night I was flying back and we we're sitting in the airport waiting for our flight and it was delayed and I was pissed about it. I was like, damn it. You know, like I want to get back to Anchorage. I got stuff I got to do. I had fear around the presentation that I had to give at work. And like, um, you know, I'm a manager now I'm a nurse manager and a nurse educator and, uh, I teach nurses anyway. I was had fear around this presentation and like, and then this person calls the hotline. They're not even from Anchorage and like, they're from like Michigan and they just don't want to talk to anybody in Michigan because they've got legal troubles and they're concerned that if somebody in AA is going to talk smack about their legal problems. And so they're calling Anchorage. And I, it was, it was, I was kind of annoyed with this person at first. And then I was like, no, this is an opportunity to get out of yourself. Like, and I realized it was like God trying to be like, Hey bitch, wake up. Right. Like it's all good. Like listen to where this person's at, you know? And, I'm so grateful for that today. And, and um, anyway, thanks. Thanks for inviting me, Laura. That's all I got.